0: Laughing louder, digging deeper, and living larger. Once again, welcome to No Apology with the Bible Idiots. We're Chris and Emily Danielson, and today is Wednesday, which means our long-form teaching is coming at you. And today, Chris is going to be turning to the book of Luke, chapter 24. And of course, we are looking at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the title of the message is Best Morning Ever. And just a little forewarning, a little disclaimer, he says the word morning a lot before he gets into it. So, you know, if, if he says morning over and over and you notice that morning is being said often in the morning, on um, this morning, uh, just know that he gets warmed up and, and it's it really is a wonderful Easter message. So... Luke chapter 24, best morning ever, and that's the last time I'm going to say that word. Here's Chris Danielson.
1: This is just such a special Sunday. Um, There was a church a couple years ago I preached on a Sunday morning on Easter, but other than that, it was all the way back in 2007 was the last time I got to preach at a community-wide sunrise service in Tucson, Arizona, and the sun was coming up over the Catalina Mountains, and it was just a beautiful morning. And I walked out this morning with a cup of coffee with my dogs in the backyard in Abilene, Kansas. And I got to tell you, it was just as beautiful. What a great morning it was today, huh? Well, today was a great morning, but we're going to talk about the best morning ever. The Bible has a lot to say about mornings. Just a few observations to make the statement very clear. Our Savior prayed early in the morning. Joshua was pictured as a man who rose up early in the morning. And you think of that picture in Genesis 22? Abraham rose up early, and he took Isaac to Mount Moriah to sacrifice him. Uh, What about Jacob, after he awoke from the sleep and set up a pillar of stones to honor God at Bethel? All throughout the Bible, there's some really cool mornings, like Daniel. Can you imagine the morning Daniel had when he saw the sun comes up when he's let out of the lion's den? That would have been an amazing morning. It's just not anything compared to the morning that we have in front of us today, 2,000 years ago. Every one of those mornings are great. But none of them can compare to the morning that we're going to discuss in the passage we're going to read in just a second. And I'm not really a morning person. I've had a little over 20,000 mornings, but I've never had a morning like the one we're going to read in this passage. In fact, I hosted a morning show on the radio for 15 years, and that was kind of God's way of just kind of a funny thing, because I hate mornings. And so I want to spend some time today to look at this special morning, this great morning when our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, conquered death, hell, and the grave. And there was never one like it before or since. So, uh, why don't we honor God this morning by standing and reading our text. It's in Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12, and then we skip to verses 36 through 48. It's a little bit of a longer run, but if there's ever a morning to do it, today's that day. Luke 24, starting in verse 1. To them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stopping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Kick it down to verse 38, or 36, I'm sorry. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why? Do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for the Spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they still disbelieved for joy were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understanding the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, let this be your time with your children. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated, please. All right. When you stop and you consider what a morning it was, it's easy to let it just gloss over you, especially those of us who've been in the church for a long time. It's, It's easy to look at Resurrection Sunday and just have it be another another deal and it's not it's so much more than that it's quite the morning when jesus rose it was a morning when jesus took the stinger of death and eternity death hell in the grave and gave us eternity all in one moment of time it was the best morning ever it's a morning like no other and i want to break it down into four glorious points today And just kind of outline some of the stuff that may normally go over our heads. And I just want us to take a few minutes and just absorb this. So let's start with point number one. Point number one is it was a morning of huge reflections. It was a morning of huge reflections. Now, the morning began to dawn on the first day of the week after Jesus had died on the cross. And the women come to the tomb and they'd finished prepping the Lord's body for burial because it was right before Sabbath. And Sabbath happens when? At sundown on Friday, right? What happened from noon to three? They had an unexpected sundown. People forget about that. So everything happened in a hurry. And so burial preparations had been started by Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea the day the Lord died. You can find that in John 19, 38 through 42. But these women knew that there was more to be done to prepare the Lord for long-term burial, so they had to come back on Sunday morning. They couldn't do it on Saturday. Anytime the sun went down on Friday night until, until Sunday morning. So they're headed to the tomb, and our Lord's disciples, they're locked up in the upper room. And they're 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 fearing that they're going to suffer the same kind of death that Jesus suffered. Keep in mind, this all went down rather rapidly. And it was chaos. And a lot of times we read the scriptures and what we see is we see oh, this happened 2, 3, then this happened 4, 5, then this happened 6, 7, and it's kind of like a two-step. And you just do this two-step through the Holy Week. And you you think that this, you know, this was just something that was portrayed in Hollywood in some movie from the 60s where Jesus just speaks. Very verily, verily, I say unto you. And, da, da, da. and it's just this night. And no, this was just absolute chaos. He claimed to be the son of God. He rode in on a donkey and he on Palm Sunday was proclaiming to everybody, I'm the Messiah. And then throughout the week, he doesn't act like the Messiah they think he's going to be. Some of them wanted him to overthrow Rome, and he's not doing that. He's talking about forgiving your brother. He's talking about having peace and love. Well, that's not the guy that's going to overthrow Rome. And then the Jewish leaders are like, if he gets a hold of all this, he's not respecting us as if we're supposed to be you know, what we're supposed to be. You know, we want to be high, the high priest and, and all of us in our robes and our righteousness, and he's not respecting us at all. So he cannot be the Messiah that we want. And so then they get him to kill him, and when they kill him, an earthquake happens, the veil is torn in two, there's darkness for three hours, and even the Romans are like, oh my goodness, this must be the Son of God. So it's in this chaos that's happening. The disciples are afraid, and they're hiding in the upper room. They're scared. And you have to ask yourself, 2,000 years later, as we study the Scriptures, how could they be so upset? Didn't they believe that Jesus was the Messiah? But it was, it was shocking. It was stunning. It was all happening so fast. And we forget that when we read it. It becomes white noise to us. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He rose again on the Easter Sunday, you know, baked the ham, hide the eggs. And we forget how awesome this is. See, they had banked, the disciples had banked their future that he was the Messiah. Now he's dead. During the week, Judas had given up on him being the Messiah that he thought he was supposed to be, so he betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. See, the man who had so radically changed their life by his power had demonstrated love and power of God to them, now had died a violent and humiliating death, and they're just shell-shocked. And they're hiding because they think they're coming for them too. And I can understand their grief. As you reflect on the sadness of the disciples, think about it now. Even the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 12-19, through 19, write it down. We're not going there today. Write it down. Look it up later. He, Apostle Paul says, <clears throat> if Jesus is dead, then we're all headed to hell. If Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, if there's no resurrection of the life, then what's the hope? What's the point? And even in this life, we are most miserable. There has to be this resurrection. There has to be this hope that we're looking forward to. The Apostle Paul based everything that he did and wrote in the New Testament on this moment in time that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Jot it down, 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19. Read it later. It was a huge morning of reflections. And in point number 2, verses 2 through 12, it was a morning of huge revelations. This is a big-time moment of huge revelations. In the midst of their sadness that morning, God the Father took great pains to minister to their hearts and their needs. Aren't you glad that the Lord cares about you when you hurt? Have you ever, those of you who know Jesus as your Savior, have you ever had that moment where God comforted you when you hurt? And isn't it awesome? Isn't it fantastic? It's great revelation in our life when we have those moments. Now, I've got just a a running list here I'm going to hit you with. There's eight of them. And these are the things that that God did to, to, to help us in this moment of huge revelations. Number one, he rolled the stone away from the tomb, not to let Jesus out, but to let the Lord's followers in. Number two, he sent an angelic messenger with the good news that Jesus was alive from the dead. Never has the world heard a message like this one. And it still reverberates through the halls of time and will throughout all of eternity. He is alive. He is alive. It's a huge thing. Don't let it become white noise in your world. Number three, he had a word of encouragement specifically for Peter. Why? Because Peter had followed at a distance and denied him three times before the rooster crowed. An amazing story. So, Peter is on the outs, even with his Lord, who's now dead. Peter's crushed. In, in Mark chapter 16, verse 7, the angel actually says these words Tell the disciples and Peter, tell the disciples and Peter, put your name in there. Tell the disciples and you that Jesus Christ died and rose again for you to give you victory and eternity. Number four, he met Mary Magdalene outside the tomb. She had a great love for the master. And love begets great love, Luke 7 and 1 John chapter 4. He left a message for his followers inside the tomb. That's point number five. The interior of the tomb was not a scene of chaos. This was a scene of organized statements by Jesus. It was a scene of serenity and order. Now, the napkin that had been wrapped around the Lord's face was folded neatly and laid by itself. That speaks volumes of what the Lord Jesus was doing. He didn't just explode out of that tomb without a purpose. No, it was order. Everything God does like this is order. That napkin was folded in a very specific way. When you went to a dinner party in the first century and you got up from your place to go do something, you would fold your napkin in a way that said you were coming back. Now, that's what Jesus did. He had, a, he had his napkin there saying, I, the, the shroud of his face was, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. You want an an example in our world? When you're at a restaurant, if you take all your silverware and put it on your plate, what's that a sign of? You're done. Take it away, right? There is a statement from the Lord Jesus from the tomb that he's coming back. Number six, he revealed himself to his two disciples as they traveled. That's uh, That's in the chapter that we didn't read the text today, 13 through 35 of chapter 24. Seven, he met with his disciples that evening to show him that he was alive. He showed them that he showed up to comfort them. And then he'd meet them later in a week in Galilee. And number eight, just because Thomas doubted, I think that there's that special moment a week later in Galilee when he shows up to Thomas and says, go ahead. Go ahead. Check it out. It's real. Now, there were many other things that took place on that resurrection morning. And it marks this great and glorious day. And for 2,000 years, the message has not changed. We still need to hear the good news that Jesus is risen from the dead. Why? Because he is alive today that gives us an incredible hope for tomorrow, no matter what your circumstance. The person who is trapped in sin and sees no avenue of escape needs to know that Jesus has made a way to make you free. And for those of us who have been freed in Christ, we have an enemy that constantly tries to trip us up and discourage us. We need to be reminded that we have hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that Jesus is alive. We need to know that Jesus has come for our salvation. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, it says, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. In Hebrews 7, 25, it says, Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. Thank God for the proof that Jesus lives. The proof that Jesus lives. I've seen it. I've seen it with my own eyes, not just in my life, but I've seen it in the lives of others. When we lived on the western coast of Alaska in the Eskimo villages, It's the most visible thing I've ever seen. When somebody would come to know Jesus, their whole countenance would change. You can look for Jesus Christ and find Him. And you can see that it's real. Right around Resurrection Day we sing a song that goes like this. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that He is living whatever men may say. I see His hand of mercy. I hear His voice of cheer. And sometimes And just the time I need him, he is always near. And the chorus says, he lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. Anybody know the next line? He walks with me, he talks with me, along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. Ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart." Emily used to always say this. She always used to say, I know, I know because I know. It's a morning of huge reflections, of huge revelations. Point number three, we drop down to verses 36 through 43. It was a morning of huge realizations. Huge realizations. While the disciples were cowering in the upper room out of fear for their lives, something miraculous was happening right in their presence. Jesus, the one who had just died on Friday, was standing there in their midst, and they were terrified. They didn't know what they were seeing. However, Jesus has some news to tell. He tells them, "You know, look at, look at my hands, look at my feet. Prove I'm real? Offer me something to eat. A ghost can't eat anything, so he ate the broiled frisk. I read it to you just 10 minutes ago. Most of the disciples hadn't believed until that moment. Now they are convinced Jesus is alive. Go back to the chaos of the the time. They're stunned now. Jesus is standing there in front of them, talking to them. And in verse 41, the statement, And while they yet believed not for joy and marveled, what that means is, this seems too good to be true. That's the literal translation of that. This is just too good to be true. They're beside themselves with joy, and and they can't hardly process what they're seeing. It was an exciting moment for the disciples of the Lord. And for us, we can just read it and just gloss right over that excitement and not delve into it and realize how awesome of a moment this is. You need to understand that Jesus is alive. What happened in the lives of the people can happen in the lives of the people of our world today, just like it did in these people. The world needs to realize that Jesus is more than a baby in a manger. He's more than just some dude who got himself crucified. He's not a teacher. He's, you know, WWJD, throw that out. This is the God of the universe coming down to save sinful man and now has victory over death, hell, and the grave, which means we have access to eternal life forever. It's more than just a story in a dusty old book. He is real, and he is the only hope we have for missing hell and getting heaven. We need to grasp the truth today that he's not some bonnet-wearing, basket-toting, egg-hiding bunny. Okay? He died and rose again from the dead. There's always going to be a counterfeit, and there's always going to be a distraction surrounding our faith, no matter what it is. Just be prepared for it. And I have no problem with the Easter bunny. In fact, when our kids were young, I played the role of Iron Tail and we would hide the eggs, and we would have fun. In the midst of it, we would always talk about that that's fun and that the eggs represent spring and a new life. And we always want to have our new life in Jesus Christ and that it's Resurrection Sunday. He is risen. risen. Amen. This is about Jesus. It's the fact that he died for our sins while we were yet sinners, Romans 5.8. And it's about the fact that he was buried, and then three days later, he kicked the back door of the tomb for every one of us open. Nothing will ever hold us back, those of us who know him. I mean, that is just awesome. There's no problems in this earth that can overcome that. The fact that when we die, the back door of our tomb is open. The casket is really a hope chest. The urn with the ashes is nothing more than just a holding place for us until we stand in front of Jesus. Or is he just a story in a, in a book? Or is he real in your heart today? That's the question that must be faced by all men. Jesus posted it to his disciples. He's just straight up, right in their grill, Matthew, uh, Mark chapter 16, who ye say that I am. Who you say? What do you. Peter got it right. Peter said, you are the Christ. Matthew 27, 22, he asked Pilate, or Pilate actually said out loud, what shall I do with, the, with Jesus who is called the Christ? What's your answer to those questions today? Jesus says, who, who do you say that I am? Pilate said, what do we do with this Jesus? The God of the universe on this Easter Sunday, on this resurrection Sunday, is asking every one of you, what are you going to do with him? If you know him and you've surrendered your life at the foot of the cross, let's grow together and let's celebrate. And if you don't know him, you have an opportunity to come to him and give him all of your sin and baggage and he takes it for free and he writes your name down in the Lamb's Book of Life and now you're one of us authentically and we're going to party in the New Jerusalem together. Death cannot hold us. I don't know about you, but that's That's pretty cool. That's worth putting a jacket on when you feel uncomfortable in it. Tie still too far. Let's go to point four, verses 44 through 48 of our text this morning. It was a morning of huge spiritual results, huge spiritual results. Jesus, as they hung out together that first resurrection morning, he began to tell the disciples God's plan was to save the world. They had been called by the Father of the universe to be witnesses and that they were to spread the good news, the great spiritual victory that was won when Jesus arose from the dead. He had a smackdown on a bunch of stuff. Let me just cover it for you real quick. When Jesus arose from the dead, very old enemies that had plagued man since sin entered the world through Adam became forever defeated in that moment. Number one, death was defeated. Imagine the struggle that ensued early that morning when the Prince of Life arose. No more would death be able to claim victory and sting the human race with its bitter curse. Jesus entered into death's dominion and rendered it helpless. For the child of God, it's merely a doorway from this land of sorrow to that heavenly land of splendor, where every tear will be wiped from the eye, and the saints of God will live forever in the glorious presence of our exalted Savior. Number two, hell was defeated. When Jesus entered death for mankind, he descended to a place called hell. He went to the paradise portion of the land of the dead. In Luke 16, you can check it out with Lazarus and the rich man. This was the same place that the redeemed thief on the cross went to when he died in Luke 23, 43. Jesus went there and proclaimed a liberty to those who had died looking forward to his coming in faith. And when he arose from the dead and ascended to his Father in heaven, the Bible tells us he took those souls with him to the Father in heaven in Ephesians chapter 4. Now, all those who believe in Jesus go directly to the Father when they leave this world. Hell has been forever removed for the child of God. That's what the Bible says. That's what Jesus Christ taught. That's when you put the harmony together of Genesis chapter 1 through Revelation chapter 2, salvation history, all the way through it. Call me the Bible idiot if you want, but it's true. I know it's true, and I stand on it, and it's all I want out of this earth because I can't wait to get to the other side. Why? Because point number three, the grave was defeated. Another enemy that died with the grave. All his life, man has feared that moment when he'll lay down his body in death. As one of our members and I were talking about the other day, one of our covenant partners, we're ready to go to heaven, but we're we're always going to fight for that next breath because it's built into us to fight for life. Why? If heaven's so glorious, why don't we just all... Go there now, because there's something about that we want to serve God with such energy that we want to give everything we got, everything we got. And if he wants to use me until I'm 90 years old, I'm going to do the very best I can. If he wants to call me home today, it's, then I have done my very best. Some of us have played football. And when you play football, especially when you were my size, you had to give it all. And when that fourth quarter gun would go off at 0-0-0 zero, zero, zero on the clock, you knew that there was not another ounce left to give if you played the way we played. If you played championship ball. That's what I want to do. That's what I want Lifehouse to do. I want us to I want us to want the ball. The game's on the line, give me the ball. And I'm going to give everything I've got until the grave tries to claim me, but it will have no ownership on me, and I'm going to leave it all on the field. And so if God gives me breath, I'm going to fight for it. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. It's been said, instead of weeping at the side of a departed saint, we ought to shout ourselves, just raw in our voice, hoarse. They've outstripped us. They're already home with Jesus in glory. What a blessing to know. But if my king wants me to live here for another year, another two years, another decade, and give it all I can, then that's all I want. And if he wants to call me home, amen. Let's go. As Ecclesiastes 7.1 says, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death better than the day of one's birth. For the believer, that is so true. And for the unbeliever, it is so sad. It is so sad. Another thing that was knocked down, just spanked hard and eliminated, was sin. At the resurrection, the other enemy that died that day was sin. Now, in truth, sin had taken care of three days earlier at the cross. It was done at the cross. The shed blood of Jesus covered the sin. But the resurrection of Christ is the Father's amen to the sacrifice of the Son on the cross. The death of the Savior saves no one, but the one who is alive can save all who comes to him by faith. Hebrews 7.25. You know what? I don't have it. I'm going to look it up. I just want you guys to hear this. Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's pretty cool. That's a big verse. Promises great things to everyone who will believe in its message. Sin does not have to defeat you. Jesus won the victory over sin on the cross, nailed it to the coffin lid shut, and when he rose from the dead, you can be free by faith in Jesus. Number five, Satan was defeated. Satan, old devil, the dragon, the accuser of the brother, and the old serpent, whatever name you want to call him, the outcome is the same. He is the enemy of God and of the people of God. He tried everything he could to short circuit Jesus' roll into the cross for our sins. The babies in Bethlehem through Herod, the storm in Galilee, the temptation, the oppression in Gethsemane, Satan was there just pushing. And our Lord and Savior gave it all, and he did not sin. He did not wilt. He did not buckle, but he went. He endured every temptation. He weathered every storm, and he made it to the cross. And when he cried, it is finished, Satan heard the foundations under his kingdom began to crack. Three days later, when Jesus arose from the dead, Satan witnesses total destruction of every plan and every scheme. Now he knows his time is short, and the Bible says he seeks those who he can devour. But like M.C. Hammer says, can't touch this. You can't touch me because I'm done. I'm sealed. I'm saved. What about you? He saw his power broken and himself judged. Satan is a defeated foe. He's defeated by the Lord Jesus forever. Consider what the Bible says about the devil's future. Revelation 20, look it up later. Victory has forever been won over the devil. Do you understand it? Do you get it? Because Jesus lives, you and I can be saved by the grace of God. Because he lives, we can have our sins washed away forever. And we say that in the church from VBS on, and it just becomes like this, you know, whatever. No, no. Because he lives, we get to go to heaven when we leave this world. Because he lives, the grave has no power over those who believe. Because he lives, eternal life is our present possession. I live eternally today, right now. Because he lives, one day we too will live with him in the heavenly city. Those of us who are covenant partners in Lifehouse Church, because we've professed our faith for Christ, you can't become a covenant partner without it. We're going to party together in the new Jerusalem forever. Think about that. I never have to step another day in this world alone, ever, because he lives. Because he lives, there is hope, there is help, there is a home awaiting for us in eternity. Because he lives, I also am alive, now and forevermore. Because he lives, my sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. Because he lives, my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. God is my father. Sin has no dominion over me. Because he lives, I am saved forever. Wow, the list could go on. I could could have kept making this list. The English language would be exhausted before this list would be done. Have you come to the realization that Jesus is alive? He is who you need. Do you understand what will happen if you die without him? Do you realize there is no other way to heaven except through the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know what his death was for you? Do you know that his death will not mean anything to you unless you bow before him in repentance and humility and confess your sins unto him? Did you know that you can do that very thing today? What a day. I know a couple people that got saved on on Resurrection Sunday. And I just, I try not to covet my neighbor's salvation, but I think that's the coolest thing ever. If God's speaking to you today, this is your shot. Do you know you can thank him for his grace and his love? that he is alive, today is a wonderful day to come before him and renew your commitment to him. Maybe you are saved and you just haven't been living for him and you're like, Jesus, that has to change. Today's the day that can change. It'd be a wonderful day for those of us who are saved to just thank him and praise him for all the blessings in our life, which by the way, aren't material. They're spiritual blessings. There's peace in the midst of the storms. There's provision in the midst of the storms. There's healing in the midst of the sickness. And if Jesus chooses not to provide or not to heal or not to show up and make my sadness and turn my frown upside down in his sovereignty because he lives, I can still claim it. And then he gives me what the Bible calls a peace that passes all understanding. And that's here for you today. It'd be a wonderful day to call on the risen Savior for cleansing, for help, or for many other things we humans desperately need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just love you and thank you and praise you. We love you for living the perfect life. We love you for the sacrificial death, and we love you for your victory over death, hell, and the grave with the resurrection which we celebrate today. Be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen.